Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Toby. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling somber. And the reason for that is because we have entered this kind of what feels like a whole new era for, for Europe and the world because Russia has invaded the Ukraine and there is a war taking place, which I am very aware that there have been numerous wars and there's often always wars happening around the world. But I think this one does feel particularly different just for me as a you know someone that lives in the UK. I, I feel like it's so close to home, which isn't a reason just to be considering it or thinking about it but i do feel like it's really tragic because you know we've 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 had the previous world war 2 and world war 1 and and you just hope that there would have been some sense of you know people would learn from previous mistakes and it just seems like they haven't yeah today we are going to be joined by an amazing photographer who comes out of a kind of documentary photography focus in a sense and has done some extraordinary work and we met our guest from the journalist um, Hetty Judah and she actually sent me his work a few years ago and then he was part of the Deutsche Bohr Surprise which I actually saw and in London and I was blown away by the work and the, his style of photography is so arresting and so if you think about truth and what is truth especially in political matters like what we're experiencing right now you know we never really know if our governments are telling us the truth and then in depending on what country you're living in you're not necessarily being told the truth if I think Russia is a great example of that right now the lies that they're being told you know through their media and I think one of their media stations is actually shut down today because of the fact they're basically telling the Russian people what's happening and then they're being silenced so that happens all the time but I think it's an interesting question within art about how how much you know what what is truth what is storytelling what is auto fiction all of these ideas but anyway we are going to be talking to our guest because he has been based in the Ukraine for the past year and a half and he actually relocated his home there and is based there full time, doesn't have a second home anywhere else or anything like that. He actually is based there and he's been visiting for the past seven years, initially going in 2015, which we'll, we'll explore. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Mark, Mark Neville. Neville. Hi, Mark. Hello, Robert. Hello, Russell. Good Hello. to talk to you today. Good Thank to talk you to so you much too. for joining us. Yeah. My absolute pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Where, where, where are you, Mark? Well, I'm staying in the town of Lublin in Poland tonight, which is after um, having spent the past seven days since the war started in, in Ukraine. So I actually managed to get across the border with my partner, uh, Lukeria, who's Ukrainian. We managed to cross late last night with several thousand other people. And um, so for the moment, we're away from, away from the bombs and the... Um, and the tanks, which is which is quite a relief. I mean, I uh, I was very keen to get my partner safe. To be honest, that was mm. my priority, and uh, I will head back to Ukraine in, probably in a few days to mm. to do things like get some medicine back to my friends and their families, and try and persuade them to leave as well. Because I, you know, I, I don't think it's looking good there at the moment. To be honest, no. Where were you living? prior then to go to crossing are you based in Kiev? yeah so i actually you know i've been coming to ukraine since about 2015 and uh, totally fell in love with the country and actually moved here completely like my studio my home my possessions everything 18 months ago so that was october 2020 and um yeah so uh, 
uh, I'm in shock, my friends. I'm in shock at what's happened. I'm physically, mentally in shock and somewhat traumatized, I would say. I think I think happened. I mean you're you're there on on the ground and mm. you obviously know the place and obviously also I always pronounced it as Kiev I think most of us have and that's the Russian pronunciation of the town and now we all know to call it Kiev uh which yeah. is you know something we're picking up but then obviously you said you've mm. crossed over and we're watching the news and we're watching the refugee crisis and now a million mm. people have crossed over mm-hmm. I mean what was that experience like and also you know you're a photographer do, mm. Is there a certain part of you that is you're at the heart of this and you're experiencing this, but do you see images wherever you go when you're in these situations? If you're a, a journalistic photographer, yeah, I mean, I make a and you know, I make a definite decision if I'm working or not, and if I'm not working, I might see images, but I don't really think about them, and I don't punish myself for not taking the images and thinking, right. damn, I wish I had my camera with me. So my, you know, I shoot on film. I have several very big, very heavy analog cameras that I use, and I normally shoot with a flash as well, which is also very heavy, has a very heavy battery, and it's on a kind of arm on the side of my camera, which I've made myself, and the battery I sling over my shoulder, and that's quite heavy as well. So, you know, you end up looking like RoboCop when you're out photographing. So, it's not something you would casually carry when you're going to buy a pint of milk or going to see some friends or right. you know so i either i'm working or i'm not working in other words so it's a, it's always a deliberate decision to go out and 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 find material um and and have that context already set up for me so uh that's very much part of my working process so i don't you know i tend to visually turn my mind and my eye off the rest of the time because actually taking photographs is an extremely intense uh, process. I mean, physically and mentally, it's it's exhausting if you're going to do it properly. You've got to focus 200%. Well, I, I do anyway. And so I used to be able to go for about six or seven hours a day photographing uh, when I was working. And now I would say I could probably do about three or four very intense hours of shooting. And then I kind of have to say, okay, you know, I'm not producing the material I want. It's counterproductive to carry on after, you know, shooting three or four hours. So it kind of goes like that, guys, I would say. Mm. Is that the rule you set yourself then, your your own language, is that you haven't allowed yourself an easy way of taking photographs? As you're saying, everything's like heavy and arduous and you don't have the digital version. It's like that's what goes into the, the energy that goes into making your images. Well, it's, you know, it's not that I'm I'm prejudiced against digital per se. It's just I, I don't like the look of it personally. You know, if, if one could find an analog camera shooting on film, which was very light and a flash, which was very light and it did everything I wanted it to do. And of course, I'd prefer the easy option. You know, I'm not doing it to, uh, you know, put a stick to my back. I'm doing it because it actually, in my mind, produces the kind of images I want to make. Mm. And I'm constantly trying to reference the history of photography and the history of film. And the history of photography and film is 90% analog, you know. So in order to make those references, you, I, I want the images to look historically indeterminate. Mm. I want them to look as if they could have been made in the 70s or the 80s or the 60s. And in order to do that, of course, I shoot on film. That's the easiest way to make a direct reference. So I reference a lot of images from that period and the lighting and the colour 
and the compositions of kind of iconic photographers from the 70s and 80s in America and Britain and Europe, and also film stills, you know, from 60s movies and so forth. So all these images are always, as they do with everyone, all these images are there in one's kind of brain swimming around in our collective consciousness. Mm. And I'm looking as I look around the streets or whatever context it is for something that aligns with those images already in my head mm. to make those references. And it might be a face, it might be a place. And then it's a question of bringing those together. So sometimes it's something quite constructed that looks natural, but in fact, I would have made it happen over the course of a week. I'd have brought people to a certain place. I've dressed them a certain way. But there's always an element of chance in it as well. So it's that balance between constructed and and natural, if you like. Absolutely. And actually, since you've been going to the Ukraine since 2015, mm-hmm. you've 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 gone back and forth um, many many times, and you've been documenting like the people of Ukraine, just like everyday yeah. people as they go about sure. their lives. And um, I actually wasn't aware that there's been such kind of. Uh, vicious attacks happening for numerous years, like four or five years in in the eastern part of Ukraine. And there's this amazing um, portrait that I saw of some people on a beach. Can you talk a bit about that that photograph? Um, I'm not sure I know the particular picture you mean, Robert, but I can talk about how I arrived in Ukraine to begin with. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'd, I'd just done a project called Battle Against Stigma in Britain, and it was about mental health issues in the British military. So I was a kind of official war artist, they call it, commissioned by the Imperial War Museum in London mm. in 2010 slash 11. So I got a, an email saying, we want you to come for interview for this special residency with 16 Air Assault Brigade, who are the paratroopers in Helmand, Afghanistan. Mm. And I'd never been to a war zone before. It never really appealed to me or occurred to me to go. You know, I thought there was enough drama in, in civilian life not to want to chase it in a war zone as well. As well. Mm-hmm. And But my grandfather was captain of a ship during World War II. He came back with very badly psychologically damaged and he just used to shout at everyone in the family and, and take our picture, actually. And I realised then quite early that this camera was a very powerful tool of communication for him because he couldn't do it he couldn't communicate conventionally very well at all. Anyway, so I had this kind of um, desire, this ambition to find out why my grandfather had behaved so appallingly uh, throughout his life to the rest of the family. And so I, I kind of thought, well, maybe if I go to Helmand, Afghanistan, if I go to a war zone, I can, you know, I can get some insight into his PTSD and to my own family history as well. So I, I ended up getting the commission. They awarded it to me to go. And um, then I thought, God, I, you know, I'm actually going to have to go there now. <laughs> so I went out in t- late 2010 with the paratroopers and I was in Helmand for three months. Uh, and of course, I came back with having been shot at regularly um, and seen pretty terrible things. Uh, I came back myself with PTSD, mm. uh, like my grandfather had done. And um I don't know, it took me about six months to admit that I had a problem when I came back. But, you know, I couldn't sleep. I was having nightmares every night. I had to self-medicate in order to sleep. I was getting into arguments with everyone um, over nothing, you know. And then a couple of my friends said to me, look, you're not the same Mark you used to be before you went to Helmand. And I went to get um, therapy for it. And it worked, you know, it took a year or two, but it completely worked. And uh I just wanted something good to come out of that experience. So I came up with this idea for a book called Battle Against Stigma, 
And the idea was it would encourage veterans and servicemen who had never been treated for their PTSD to come forward and seek psychological assistance, to seek support. And, you know, if I, I think I'm reasonably emotionally intelligent, if I found it very difficult to come forward and admit I had a problem, imagine how tough it is for a soldier who's been told all his life you've got to man up, you know. Mm. So I thought this book's really important. What I want to do is I want to combine my pictures taken in Helmand, Afghanistan, with these stories from servicemen and ex-servicemen who used to think PTSD was bullshit, didn't exist, and now are convinced it exists because they suffered from it or their mates exist suffered from it. So I went to the Ministry of Defence and I said, I've got this great idea for a book. It's not about a criticism of the Ministry of Defence or anything like that. In fact, you can write a chapter in the book celebrating your achievements in the field of mental health uh, amongst veterans, da, 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 da. First off, they loved it. And then they got very scared. I don't know why. And they said, we refuse, we forbid you, in fact, to reproduce your images taken in Helmand, Afghanistan, with these stories from veterans about wow. PTSD. I know, unbelievable. So uh, you can't put them in the same book. So what I did was I made a book in Spain in two volumes, but in one slipcase. Oh. And it got printed in Spain, shipped over. This is in 2015. And um, I thought it was my kind of, you know, my two fingers up to the Ministry of Defence, basically. But it got seized by UK Border Force, 500 copies. And UK Border Force, go figure, has strong connections with the British, uh, with Whitehall, with the Ministry of Defence. So I was on the phone to them. I was on telly. I was, you know, uh, on the radio. I was on all the media talking about it. Where are my books? I want my books back. And to this day, they haven't been returned to me. No. Yes. And unbelievable, huh? Who'd have thought it in a British democracy? Anyway, the second consignment of books, a thousand copies, came via a different route and arrived safely in my studio. Mm. And then I furiously spent all summer 2015 sending them out to mental health charities, prison libraries, um, uh, homeless centres, all the places where if you're a veteran and you don't get treated for PTSD, you end up because you end up self-medicating, you become violent sometimes, you yeah. lose your family, your friends, your home. And um, amongst all this furore and drama, I suddenly get an email from Kiev Military Hospital in Ukraine in 2015 saying, do you have a Ukrainian language version of your book about PTSD? And I was like, wow. Okay, well, no, funnily enough, I don't. But um, I, 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 you know, I was so impressed that a post-Soviet country would would be so forward-thinking in their ambition to treat uh, PTSD that they'd approach me for a copy of this book and wanted to learn about how to treat PTSD. That I said, you know what, I'm going to get it translated into Ukrainian for you as a PDF. Can't afford to do a book, but I'll do a PDF. Send that to you. And then I thought, no, I'm going to go and visit. And I went to Kiev Military Hospital and they were they were aching, aching, calling out, pleading for support, uh, mental health support for their veterans who were coming back from Donbass, from the east of Ukraine, from the war, which has since escalated. So the war there in Donbass, the Russian invasion started actually in 2014, eight years ago. Mm. And uh, 
they've been dealing with it. That's been a, a protracted co conflict ever since. You know, every day people have been dying on that front line. And that was my first introduction to Ukraine, 2015, via this other project. And then I fell in love, guys. I fell in love with Ukraine. I fell in love with the people, the food, the culture, the architecture, the artists. And uh, every time I got an opportunity to go to Ukraine after 2015, I took it. So, for example, the New York Times said to me, uh, Mark, we want to commission you to do a project about people on holiday in their own country. So you can do Americans in Miami or, you know, wherever. And I said, no, take me to Odessa, in Ukraine. Yes. And they were like, yeah. And they were like, really? Odessa? Where's that? In the Ukraine, in Russia. And I said, no, it's in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it's a separate country from Russia. And they were like, oh, OK. So I went there and every time, you know, I got a chance to go there for work or to see friends or to exhibit or do a talk, I would take it. And then I guess 2020, I thought, what am I doing in London, guys, when I can be where my heart is, which mm. is in Kiev, in Ukraine. Mm. And I met my amazing partner, Lukiria, and we immediately started living together. And it's been just, I don't know, it's just the happiest period of my life, happiest period of my life up until about a week ago. Mm. I mean, is, yeah. is all of your equipment still in Kiev at the minute, Kiev at the minute? Yeah, so uh, what happened, Russell, was um, I woke up Thursday morning on the 24th to the sound of an explosion, and then there were sirens going, and I immediately knew what it was, what was happening, because, of course, there'd been quite a big build-up mm. to the war, uh, and... I, you know, I woke my partner up and we thought, what are we going to do? We're kind of agonizing. Should we stay? Should we leave? Uh, what should we do? And then about five o'clock in the evening, so about 12 hours later, a friend of mine who worked in the Ukrainian Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs called me and said, listen, we've had intelligence that there's going to be a Russian missile strike on the presidential home. So I live about 50 meters away from uh Zelensky. from the president wow. from Zelensky which sounds terribly posh it's not it's a nice apartment it's a nice street but it's not super posh or anything and you know that was it I just thought you know you imagine if I don't know you're sitting in your home in Oxford and someone calls you and said there's going to be a Russian yeah. <laughs> missile strike in, in imminently you wouldn't stay, stick around and make a cup of tea would you no you no. wouldn't you no. get out of Dodge so that's that's what we did we found someone who was driving to Lviv which is in western Ukraine away from the eastern front line and uh and we drove for 24 hours solid without a break constant traffic jams as millions of people hundreds of thousands at least tried to leave central and eastern ukraine which was being bombarded basically and uh then we stayed a few days in in lviv and again we've been trying to decide what what the best course of action to do i mean lukiria's parents still had in Ukraine. My friends live in Ukraine. I love this country. I love this. This is my home. You know, I don't want to go to Britain. I don't consider it my home. These are my people. And they're being bombed and shot and shelled. They're living underground for six days. Um, if you're age 18 to 60 and you're a guy in Ukraine, you're not allowed to leave the country now. Um, I mean, it's just my heart is breaking. I love these people. I love these people. What what you're doing is 
incredible what you've done throughout your career and I think it's something that goes back to when you had a project at Port Glasgow is that you've created these books these narratives and then you've given them your audience is the people who are in the books and you had this experience if we could talk about that in a minute in Port Glasgow where you you photographed this whole community and then they all had these books and I mean, this is another time where you said the books went missing with the Ministry of Defence. They also got burnt mm. by uh, a bunch, got burnt there as well, and destroyed by a, a community that were angry that they didn't appear in the book enough. But you you sure. gave it back, and from that moment, it felt like that was an amazing moment. And you said about how this this book about mental health of PTSD, you've given it back to communities to people who are struggling with that, so they can see mm. themselves. And this has now translated into a book, which we're going to come on to, which is mm. about the Ukrainian people and mm. photographing them and humanising them and creating empathy through your imagery mm. for the reality of uh, an authentic lived experience and, mm. and you're giving it back. So can we, can we go back to your Port Douglas and how, how we are up to the sure. present day? Sure. Well, I guess that was my first, that was the kind of genesis, Russell, of my first, you know, my first uh, kind of, socially engaged photo project, you know, Port Glasgow book project. It's about 20 years ago, 2003. And uh, I was kind of nowhere with my career. I was kind of 34, 35 years old. And, you know, I'd been to good art schools like Goldsmiths, and the Rijks Academie in Amsterdam, and I was still struggling. I was getting very bitter, actually, to be honest, and angry at the art world and thinking, what do I have to do to, you know, to break through? And um, I kind of just gave up and thought it's never going to happen. I moved to Scotland from abroad and uh, ended up going to Glasgow. And uh, I saw an advert, I think, in Freeze or another art magazine saying uh, competition on the west coast of Scotland. Uh, Blue sky thinking, you know, propose whatever you want. And I went to a little town called Port Glasgow, which is about 40 miles away from Glasgow itself. It's on the coast in Greenock. In the Clyde, uh, where a lot of kind of Ken Loach movies are filmed. And um, uh, I went there and I fell in love with it, this little kind of shipbuilding, former shipbuilding town. There used to be more, more ships built in Port Glasgow than anywhere else in the world like 70 years ago. And just this really gritty, almost communist uh, kind of mm. uh, working class community, you know. And, of course, I stood out like a sore thumb, you know, this tall... Englishman with a big camera but anyway you know I came up with this idea that uh, uh, you know I'd been I'd been kind of going to uh, bookshops quite a lot during that period and started looking at social documentary photography for the very first time and I remember going into Waterstones uh, and and looking at the photography shelf so not at the fine art shelf which I would normally delve into but the photography shelf and taking down these books from the shelf by people like Martin Parr, these great big mm-hmm. glossy magnum Who collects volumes. your work, doesn't he? Has your work in his yeah, collection. Well, <laughs> yes, lucky man. And, uh, Indeed. I, and like looking at these and thinking there's something wrong about my relationship with these images. You know, In other words, they're pictures of poor people going through trauma and they're beautifully packaged and they're very expensive. And why do these coffee table books always end up on the coffee tables of English white middle class people like me Mm. and not on the coffee tables of the people represented in the books themselves? And it immediately struck me there was a complete kind of obscene perversity about that relationship between the subject matter 
and the audience. And I thought, you know, much as I love photography and I have a voyeuristic pleasure in it, like we all do, of seeing how other people live and their experiences, mm. I still think there's something really wrong about that relationship, you know? So I thought, wouldn't it be great to make a project, a book, just for the people depicted in the book and not for people like me and not for the art world? So I came up with this idea to make a book of my own pictures, of social documentary images of the town of Port Glasgow, and every single house in the whole of Port Glasgow would get a free copy of the book, mm. uh, delivered to them by the local boys' football team. But the book would never itself be commercially available, you know. So the art world couldn't have it. Amazon couldn't have it. You know, you couldn't get it anywhere. Only people in Port Glasgow could have it. And there were about 8,000 homes in, 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 in the port. And uh, I remember, you know, the, the day the books were finished and delivered, I think to this day, it's probably still the best day of my life. You know, it's quite something to see these swarms of kids who are part of the, the local boys football team. There's about 100 of them, all ages, you know, picking up copies of the book from the back of a van and going through all these council estates, chapping on doors saying, here's your, your, free, your free book about the port big man you know and and um just kind of magical and seeing people's reactions to getting this gift you know kind of bewilderment like what do you want do you want some money from me or are you with the mormons or you know what's <laughs> yeah jehovah's witness is this like yeah but this is your first this was your first public art project but how that sounds expensive how do you fund something like that well, it does. It takes a lot of money. And that's always been part of the process is fundraising. So normally I try and fundraise a big chunk of the money for these projects beforehand. And it can take months or even a year or two years to do that. Right. Um, but once you get a bit of money, you know how it goes. Other people chip in a bit. Sometimes it comes all in one go. And for this particular project, I think it was mostly funded by a European fund, of course, that would not be available now because of Brexit, but it was a European Brussels-based fund for kind of underprivileged or underfunded parts of Europe, uh, which needed some kind of urban regeneration in some sense. So right. uh, I think about £60,000 came from that, and the rest came from the Scottish Arts Council, which is now called Creative Scotland. Oh, yeah. Um, but to my amazement, you know, I was awarded the commission because I was literally nowhere in terms of my career at the time. And other Turner Prize nominees and winners had applied for the project as well. And I think it was just this idea of this symbolic gift to people in Port Glasgow. So rather install, rather than install this kind of horrid bronze sculpture right in the centre of some political leader from the 1920s, they liked this idea that people could actually own something, mm. own a book and have kind of ownership of it you know yeah. and then and you choose what to do what they wanted and you made it. celebrities you made celebrities of the people in the photographs there's, there's betty robertson in the town hall disco photograph who was in the paper this this old lady who's there right front and center like smiling at camera she became like a, a, in all the newspapers because everyone can see themselves in there and i guess that's galvanizing for a community but also there was this story that i found incredible about how th there's it's a very you said it was a kind of um uh, like a Soviet era sort of vibe to the community, but there's like a, a very Catholic side and a very Protestant side. Mm. And the Protestants were furious that there was more Catholic pubs photographed that they decided to set fire to like a hundred copies or something, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was one particular street called Robert street in Port Glasgow, uh, which is predominantly uh, Protestant. 
So, you know, I was kind of naively unaware of this kind of sectarian tension until I made this project, you know, but Robert Street is particularly Protestant and they had a kind of street meeting and they took all their copies of the book and dumped them at the back of the Catholic club and set fire to them. Wow. And I got a call from the fire brigade saying, your books are on fire, Mr. Neville. So I went down with a, with a camera phone, with a phone camera, sorry, and took a few snaps. And I was really upset, actually, because I wanted everyone to love the, and love me and love the project, you know. And then I tried to find out why. And apparently it was in reaction to there being a perceived sectarian bias in my book. There was an imbalance and of images, wasn't there? <laughs> exactly. So there were nine. I think they said nine images. I think there was they said there were too many pictures of Catholic pubs and clubs and That's churches so in the book and not enough. Uh, Protestant pubs and clubs and churches represented in the book. And I went through it afterwards, of course, like you would. And there's, I think there's nine in in Catholic context and seven in a Protestant. So that slight imbalance was enough to cause a book burning. And, God. you know, at the time I was really upset. But now it's an interesting indication of how arts and art projects, and particularly public art projects, can reveal oh, yes. things about the society. I was just about to say, it's so powerful, isn't it, that... that... That, that response and it's something that's followed you ever since over the last 20 years you've had all these kind of moments where you know people try and ban your books or hide your books or all the, it's fascinating yeah, trying so to did, be silenced just, just, yeah, like, trying to truth silence is you. being silenced but did, 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 did that experience then make you reevaluate? i guess it does doesn't it it probably makes you mature in some way in in your uh, you know in, in the next projects you do that kind of response does it i guess it look d- different i guess it does what was most surprising for me was how uh, exciting it was, you know, and how much more interesting it was to talk to non-art audiences yeah. and to address those demographics rather than worry about, because, you know, if I do a show in a gallery or a museum, I kind of, it's exciting, I like it, but I kind of know in advance what the response will be, who the audience will be, mm. and what the what the various steps in the process will be. And the great thing about doing a project for a non-art demographic is that you never know. You never know what the outcomes are going to be. You never know how people are going to react. And it's that reaction which really interests me and which is really valuable. Because I think photography has a kind of responsibility. You know, we deal with reality as photographers. So we do, it sounds pompous, but we do have a kind of ethical responsibility towards the medium yes. to use it in an ethical way and and to make the process of delivering our projects ethical as well and to think about you know who's going to really benefit from what i'm doing mm. is it just me by having my name in the new york times mm. or, or is it really the people i'm documenting and so i'm constantly asking myself this question in my projects who's going to benefit from this but there's you also know? you talk about ethical responsibilities there is also an ethical responsibility to artists being sent into war zones when you were invited yeah. to do a tour of duty of the Helmand province you, you said that you were quite naive going into it and I guess quite excited and felt privileged that you had been given that responsibility to document that but yeah. you've been quoted as saying you actually in retrospect wish you hadn't gone to Helmand because of the complexities of actually sending an artist into this war zone to photograph these yeah. experiences well there's just this huge gap and I don't know if you guys have been to a war zone before, but actually there's a massive gap between how media presents these conflicts and what it's really like on the ground. So, for example, in Helmand, Afghanistan, 
uh, people were losing their legs and getting blinded and losing their ar arms when they stepped on IEDs, which was improvised explosive devices, which mm. the Taliban were using at the time, like landmines mm. triggered remotely. And they saw uh, British soldiers walking along a path or whatever. Mm. People were losing their legs every single day when I was there. And it wouldn't get reported. It would only get reported on the six o'clock news on the BBC if you lost your life. So they'd say, you know, soldier, private, blah, 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 died today in the helmet Afghanistan. However, we had the best surgeons in the world working at Camp Bastion in, in Helmand province at that time. So even if you say you step on a landmine, you lose both your legs, your arms, you get blinded. They were so good at their job. They could still find a way to keep you alive. And that was one way in which the skill of the surgeons actually and the role of the media actually made the conflict in Afghanistan a bit more palatable for the British public. So, uh, you know, I was very naive before I went. I thought, oh, the BBC, you know, it's this bastion of objectivity and truth. And yes, the BBC wouldn't lie to me. And then I saw it very clearly, this huge chasm between what we're told on television, not just in Russia, but in Britain too, and what really goes on in war zones. And of course, it's the job of the media, quite often, unfortunately, to sell wars to the British public or to mm. each other public, you know. Mm. And so uh, I do wish I'd never gone, you know, because I did come back with PTSD and I'm certainly not the same person I was before that. Mm. And I, I remember this this army officer explained it to me once. It's a bit like if you put a cat in a field mm. and let bombs off around it all day, mm. a cat might survive, but it's not the same animal anymore at the end of the day. No. And it's the same with people. You know, it doesn't matter how strong you are, whether you're Ukrainian, British, it doesn't matter. You're going to be a different person at the end of it. And that's how trauma works. And this is what makes me so incredibly angry and sad and upset about the war now, even if nobody more dies in Ukraine today or tomorrow, nobody more loses their life, nobody more gets injured, the whole country will be completely traumatized for generations now. It's also and just, that, it's just yeah. the destruction, isn't it? Like the level of destruction is what I just can't get my head around. Because it's like, you know, say the war does end at some point, I don't know when that will be. Yeah. It's like the country's then totally devastated as well. It's like, it's, I don't know, I just, I find it so disturbing. It's, it's, be, it's beyond language, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's totally beyond language. But that's interesting because I've, I've heard you say before that, that there's a kind of um, duty or responsibility for art somehow to, mm. um, to kind of show people how things are, but also to um, explain the conflict somehow, um, you know, yeah. through, through making images. And I, yes. I, I feel yes. like that, your, your new book... Um, stop tanks with books is yes. really fascinating because the photo I was talking about before was actually one from Odessa and it's one oh, of three great. people on the beach in Odessa. I think it's Jana, yes. Igor, Karaman with friend Galina and it's from yes. 2017. And it's an amazing portrait of the woman with her hat and she's got her eyes closed and the man yes. has, a, has a black fingernail. You know, the detail yes. of the photograph <laughs> is extraordinary. But the reason I love th this new book and these photographs is because not only does it show us the kind of the rich culture, the kind of amazing humanity within the Ukraine, um, people mm. that we too can relate to because, you mm. know, they're, they're just like us. You know what I mean? Like It's like looking yes. at a picture of my mum at the beach or something. It's humanising <laughs> completely, isn't it? But, but, Giving agency to yeah. them. Yeah, but also it brings dignity. 
And that's, that's the word that I kept thinking about when I was looking at your work. It's like your, your, your skill for photography is bringing dignity to a people, to a, to a time, and it's documenting that time. And you have been there since 2015, you know, documenting mm. it. And now in the current war, we're able to look at mm. these people. And I, I know those beaches are probably, you know, currently under attack, you know, but, mm. but we're yeah. seeing what it was like, which somehow does captivate us in order to feel like we should, you know, support have solidarity, you know, our government should be fighting, in my opinion, mm. um, or at least Thank supporting, you, you know. Um, Thank you. Is, is that, how does, how, I mean, can you speak a bit about that, that particular photograph, just as one point in your new book? Yeah, sure. I mean, that was part of the New York Times commission I did in 2017. And um, I just, even then, for example, I remember being on the beach taking pictures and, suddenly a military helicopter would fly over mm. and then everybody would stop silence like a whole packed beach everyone would stop and just look up at this huge black helicopter flying over and then it would go and then within 10 seconds <laughs> everyone was back to you know building sandcastles splashing around and that is the perfect metaphor for ukraine yeah. they've been living with this war for eight years and they just get on with it and they've tried tooth and nail to get the West to pay attention to it. They've constantly tried to fight this battle of Kremlin disinformation, saying things like Ukrainians are fascists. I mean, my God, we have a we have a Jewish president, for God's sake. How does that align with being a fascist state? You know, it's complete nonsense. And yet so many of these myths have been perpetuated by the Western media who haven't bothered to fact check or to go there or to research properly. And they've actually perpetuated a lot of them, mm. even big, well-known British newspapers and American newspapers and the Europeans. And part of what I try to do in the book is, is kind of readdress that, realign those representations. So I've not only got pictures of normal life of all types of different demographics in, in Ukraine at the moment, um, uh, which I've taken over the past seven years. I've also got these incredible short stories by Luba Yakibchuk, who's this brilliant Ukrainian writer who wrote what it was like when the Russians first illegally occupied Donbass in 2014, when they first invaded. And I tell you, people were tortured, kidnapped, set on fire in the street. So, you know, this regime is not going to be a pleasant one to live under. I can tell you now, as an occupying force, it will be hell. I've also gotten the book Research from the Centre for Eastern European Studies in Berlin, who did this massive ethnographic research into the political views of some of the 2.5 million, 2.5 million people who had already been displaced by the war in 2017. Um, one of the biggest displacements of people anywhere in the world, and the West did nothing about it. And we're talking about a country at the heart of the geographic centre of Europe. Mm. So I've also got my call to action, which I wrote months ago. And in my call to action in the book, I asked for all the things that the world is asking for now. You know, months ago, I said, let Ukraine join NATO. Mm. Let Ukraine have a fast track to EU membership. Mm, mm, mm. Really tough sanctions against Russia. Do not do business with Russia. And because um, deterrence is the only thing that worked with the Kremlin. Appeasement doesn't work. Nice sit-down chats don't work. The only thing they respect is deterrence. Yeah. And if the West had acted sooner, or if they'd have acted eight years ago when they should have done, 
then we wouldn't be in this situation now, I promise you. And the book was crying out for that to happen. And I started this book. I had the idea for this book in 2016, six years ago, Stop Tanks with Books. And it was exactly the same concept it is now. Make this book, which showed the world, the West, how Ukrainians actually are, who they are, get rid of these fake myths about them and have a call to action for the international community to stop the war in, in Crimea and in Donbass, stop the occupation in Crimea, to end the war, to get the Russian forces out. But the world did nothing about it because of money, because the you know countries like Britain were too busy washing the money from Putin yeah. and his oligarch friends. So I know it sounds so, so perverse, and it is perverse, but I, I, I fought tooth and nail to get this book out for the past yeah. six years. I had one big German publisher let me down, delay me for three years with it. And by November last year, I said to him, look, we have to, I have to get this book out. I can't wait for you any longer. And I went and found a different publisher, Nazraeli Press in California. And then since that day in November, I've worked solidly every day to get the book out. Mm. And we worked at breakneck speed to get the book finished. We then contacted a printer in Turkey in Istanbul called Mazmat Bar, who were incredible. They dropped other projects. They saw the urgency for this. And we got the finished PDF to them at the end of January. And they got the book printed and finished by mid-February within two weeks. And that is the fastest. Yeah. The fastest Literally ever made. weeks before the Russian invasion, you printed it. So six years in the making, then weeks before they invaded, you printed it. I printed it at my own expense, you know, because wow. I couldn't wait for a publisher to. And it just felt so real. And I wanted to keep my home and no one else was doing anything about it. But again, but what you're doing books. with this is that you're, you're distributing 750 copies of this mm. book to diplomats and politicians, international yeah. media, celebrities. Yeah. People have power to influence with this action. So if some of these books yes. gone to Russia, and I just want to say also that yes. you are, we are pro-Russia, anti-Kremlin. That's Good. what Me it's, too. it's Me like, too. you know, it's the Russian people who are being lied to and propagandized. If that's well, they've been victims of this for a long time. It's a gaslit. So, they've been a whole gaslit country for like years. Yes. But but this, okay. this again, you're funding. So these 753 copies that you're getting out there, how many have yeah. got out there? How many are going to Russian media and, and, and power? Well, sure. Good question, Russell. Well, about 200 went out and arrived at their destinations four days four days before the war erupted. So on the 20th, the first, I think, 200 copies went to diplomats, MPs, members of the European Parliament, people involved in NATO discussions, celebrities like Sean Penn. um, All these people got a copy. And it was basically that. It's like saying, listen, this is who Ukrainians are. I'm appealing to you emotionally because I don't think actually diplomats and politicians make a big difference in the long-term scheme of things. I think it's people, public opinion, people's emotions. And that's what changes things. It's, it's people's emotions and feelings. So it's a, you know, and art changes people's feelings. So it's a, you know, a pop song about Vietnam. It's a poem about World War One, uh, you know, and that's what I'm trying to do with the book is reach, you know, my target audience is these people of power and influence, but they're still people, yeah. you know, and I have to connect with them through this book and say, listen, you know, I want you to see a version of yourselves in these in these people, you know, and I want you to be prompted into really doing something about it immediately. Yeah. You know, um, because people are dying now, you know, so 
the race against the clock has been the most stressful thing I've ever done, I think. You know, you... Meanwhile, I've been, I've been displaced from my own home. I've had to rush to get my, my partner to safety. I have to go back next week with medical supplies. I'm constantly on the phone to people in, in Belgium, Germany, France and Britain saying, have you got those books out yet? Mm. So the books went out from a central hub in Istanbul in Turkey a week ago. More went out and arrived today. And I'm saying you've got to get that book to that person now. Every day counts. I think you so, said that, that in a way it's too late, but in another way it's completely timely, that the fact that these books are out now. Well, I, you know, it's hard to, know, to gauge impact. That's another terrible thing of the way I work is it's really difficult to know if it's making a difference or not. The only thing I know is I have to do it, you know. So I... I don't know. I mean, I wish the books had been ready a couple of months ago, six months ago, for example, because mm. I think them. You know, I'm not to blame. I blame my former publisher, to be honest. I did everything I could, and I'm still doing everything I, I can to have an impact through these books. And that's one of the terrible things about conflict is it raises this whole notion of responsibility. You know, is my responsibility to make my, sure my partner or my family are safe? Is my responsibility to pick up a gun or a Molotov cocktail? Is my responsibility to leave the country and try and fundraise from a remote, safe place? Mm. Is my responsibility responsibility now to get these books out into the target audience's hands as quickly as possible? And at the moment, I'm trying to do all those things all, all at once. You know, how I do don't people get this book? I mean, is it is there like a PDF yeah. online now? Like, if people listening to Talk Art Now want to see this book and want to see these images, how do they do that? Well. Uh, there will be a commercial release for the book. Um, so the book's published by Nasrelli Press in America. They'll have a commercial release for the book. Uh, there's also a distribution, another commercial release for the book through Britain at Satanta Books. So you can pre-order a book, but that'll probably be in a, you know, a week or two's time or a few weeks' time. The first thing is getting, getting these books into the hands of people who can actually do something. Yeah. And already I've seen photographs of members of the European parliament uh going on anti-russian protests in the streets of brussels carrying copies of the book <gasps> wow Brilliant. so wow, wow. Um, and also the, yeah. the guardian has published um images and so has vice and numerous different media outlets and the great thing about this book is yes it's a book but it's also a body of work you know charting the last seven years and i think they do work as individual images and for example the guardian image which is a woman um sat on a smoking on a bench um in eastern ukraine like that 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 stopped me in my tracks that that image do you know what i mean that they're incredibly evocative powerful images and i do think that does mean you slow down you start to you know as someone who's not in, in the actual location mm. of the conflict to actually sympathize with it more to like to to to, to be able to, to digest what's actually happening you know the the intensity of her face and her stare and like it's empathy you know, that's yeah what, totally you have to if so, you empathize with someone then you know they exist that's what yeah, art does yeah. is it can't deny an existence and you by creating this body of work is saying to us you cannot deny the existence of these people they're real and they're struggling and yes. i mean is is it difficult to be a photographer in Ukraine because I've read that you said there was a paranoia of spies reporting saying that you're reporting back intelligence to Russia you know because you're not Ukrainian yourself and you're taking these images there must have been you said there's a paranoia around you well at the moment the past week it's been 
you know, it's been, you know, I talked about the Port Glasgow project being one of the best days of my life when they delivered the books. Well, I have to say, you know, last Thursday was probably the worst day of my life without, you know, exception. Um, and when I talked about spies, that's real. You know, what's, what Russia are doing is they're dropping spies in, sometimes parachuting them in. And these people are pretending to be Ukrainians and they're going down to the bomb shelters and uh, pretending to seek shelter and they're going around killing people. What? Yeah, so they're real spies, they're infiltrators, whatever the term is. What, like and what, like general general public, that innocent people? General, of course, yeah, general public. I mean, a friend of mine was sitting on his lawn about uh, the day after the conflict started, the war, the invasion started. He was sitting on his lawn front porch, just smoking a cigarette, having a cup of coffee, and this parachute lands, and it's a it's a Russian, it's one of these spies, they're not there to fight, they're there to infiltrate some of them, and he says this guy in the parachute just looked him straight in the eyes, and he said it was the most frightening thing of his life, he just immediately grabbed his, his wife and his kids, got in the car and he drove, got out of Kiev immediately, but that's what they're doing, so of course someone who's taking pictures, I completely understand it, they think are they reporting intelligence, locations, Back to, mm. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing uh, Geneva Convention at all about this conflict. You know, they are bombing civilians. They are killing kids. They are killing women. They are, you know, they don't care. You know, they're bombing whilst pretending to have peace negotiations. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's just barbaric, isn't it? It just feels well, it, like, yeah. it's, um, I mean, it's the, like our antique it feels like, like um, you know, the Middle Ages or something, the way you see well, that's, rape and that's pillaging. There's something anachronistic about this war as well. If you go to the front line in Donbass, they have trenches exactly like World War One, And that's been going on for, like I said, for eight years now, where you have one side with trenches, the other side with trenches, and the no man's land right. between, like 100, 200 metres. And then we're looking at one another through binoculars, you know, and it's just grenades going back and forth a bit of sniper fire shelling people dying every day it's exactly like world war world war one in so many respects mm. deeply deeply unpleasant deeply deeply anachronistic deeply uh perverted and obscene you know um i mean even the stories at the um at the borders where people are trying to leave because obviously there's been like how many people have left now like a million, a million. people or is it more yeah. Million, yeah, like a million people at, the, at this current time. But like, um, I, even the discussions of like, you know, white people being able to get over the border sooner, and um, you know, people of color, black people, mm -hmm. you know, yes. being made to go to the back, you know, being pushed off trains, all of that kind of Cully, stuff, all like the racism, students and, and stuff. Yeah, it's just, yes. yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's just deeply, deeply tragic and sad, and and. I don't know. I mean, I think what, you've did, also did got you see any of that at the border when you go when you went to Poland. Well, I saw lots of people of different colours there. You know, in a big Indian community there um, that I wasn't aware of that was living there actually. And uh, I, I we tried to cross the border not just yesterday, but we tried about three days ago, and uh, we tried to get the train from Lviv to Poland, okay, and um, it was one way of crossing the border, mm. and we bought tickets, and we arrived at the train station, and there were thousands and thousands God. and thousands of people trying to get onto, the, I mean, it was really dangerous, people were nearly getting crushed to death, 
and people were climbing on top of each other, screaming and shouting. It was like something from a, you know, a movie about a concentration camp, camp you yeah. know, and, uh, and they canceled four trains in a row. And so having arrived there early at the morn- in the morning, by about five o'clock in the evening, we realized it wasn't going to happen. And so we tried to get a taxi to cross the border another way. And we drove for about three or four hours in this taxi. And there was a 40 kilometer queue of cars waiting to cross the border. And it was just like, this isn't going to happen, you know. And so we had to head back because there was an eight o'clock in the evening curfew as well in the Viv at the time. Still is. No alcohol. Eight o'clock curfew. All the shops are running out of food. Sandbags everywhere. Sirens going off all the time. Um, you know, even Lviv, which is currently reasonably quiet and reasonably safe compared to Kharkov, which has been completely decimated. You know, when I crossed the border, sorry, I'm so scared about my friends. I'm so scared. I'm so worried about them. When I crossed the border, I met a Danish guy who'd been teaching in a primary school in Kharkov, which is right in the east, and that has received the most horrendous bombardment over the past week you can imagine. Mm. I mean, it sounds comic, and it is in a way, but he was sat in his bath on the 10th floor in his apartment when a bomb hit the apartment opposite him, and the whole bathtub went down through the floors, three, through three floors from 10 to nine to eight to <gasps> seven with him with in him it. in it in it yeah and it landed and um a woman in it in her kitchen was cooking with some oh. oil hot oil and all the hot oil sprayed all over him oh and he's burned all the way down his arm oh my god and uh i mean he was lucky you know he ran out of the apartment stark naked with bombs going off the house is on fire managed to rush into someone else's house get some clothing and then went back to his apartment with, with his arm, like, burnt beyond recognition. He was there for a few days. And uh, then he got an evacuation train two days ago from Kharkov. And it took 18 hours. And people were lying two or three on top of each other on the floor. There was nowhere to go to the toilet. There was nowhere to get water. But 18 hours to get them out of Kharkov to the west, to western Ukraine. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, stories like that, you're going to hear stories like that all the time now, all the time. Do you get to see the news that we're seeing then? Because as you said earlier, there's such a a vast kind of chasm between what is being reported when you were talking about the Helmand province and I guess what we're seeing now on the BBC News a week, because what you're describing the train stations we're seeing. You know, and we're being the the, the borders are being reported. We're watching the news. There are people there. There are. journalists there who are reporting back are we seeing the reality of what's going on i know russia isn't but are we seeing it um i don't know i found it very 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 difficult to look at the western reports of of the conflict i've been looking at reports from my friends on instagram facebook and those are the reports i've been looking at to be honest and i do have a problem with the whole way in which conflict is reported generally but particularly it seems to have hit me very hard now because this is the first time that I've been reporting on the war and been a victim of it at the same time. You know, when I went to Afghanistan, I was like, it was really difficult, guys. But I knew in the back of my mind, Mm. I had a safe place to go to. I had a home in London, Glasgow rather. 
I had people who loved me there and cared for me. I had a roof over my head and that kept me going. That kept me going. Now I'm like, what? how do I report on this and know that I don't have a, a safe space anymore? I don't have my home anymore. Mm. I will never see my possessions again, most probably. Mm. You know, when I left on Thursday evening, my books, my photographs, everything I own, that was probably the last time I'm ever going to see those things, mm. which is fine. They're just things, but it's more my sense of home that's gone now. This was my home, how I felt inside about myself and about my community that is destroyed now so you know it's a it's a totally different feeling and it's really come home to me as well how the west reports on conflicts so i've seen more and more and more crews from everywhere being sent to ukraine and i've put up posts everywhere saying on instagram or facebook saying listen world media Get in touch with me and I will connect you with the most brilliant Ukrainian photographers you can imagine, with the best Ukrainian journalists. And they can do a much better job than you can because they speak the language. That's your call to arms is that you're saying to the international news agencies they should engage local photographers on the ground because they have a better understanding of the country than someone from the West ever could have. Of course they do. So if you want accurate reporting and documentation, you go to the locals, don't you? It's not rocket science. And not only that, these people have no income now. There's a war going on. How are they going to make money? You know, you've got an ethical responsibility as news teams and world media to employ these people, to give them an income. So it's it's good on every level. You know, it makes sense. And how much does it cost to fly in the film crew from, oh, yeah. you know, and security, from, you know, from America, it's like fifty, dollars $100,000 at least. Mm. You know, you, all you need to do is pay Ukrainian photographer a few thousand dollars and they will do a better job. And it will be safer for everyone all around because they will know what's dangerous and what isn't. You know, it just, it just. I've heard people uh, today are doing things like Airbnb. They're booking rooms, obviously not going, but the, they're, they're paying for it and saying, this money is, I'm booking out your house for this amount of time. So you have some income just to get money in there. So people have mm. money to do stuff. Did you, yeah. when you left, did you take your camera with you then? I mean, is that a priority? Well, I have. I have several cameras, but I just took one, you know, and it's not enough. Normally I work with a flash, but to be honest with you, I thought I can't carry a big flash with me because it's just not fair. If I'm getting in a, in a small car with a limited amount of people, it's essentials only. And the same when I'm traveling across the border or on a train, what's my flash unit going to take the place of a human being on that train or in that car? No, it can't possibly. So I took one, uh, medium format film camera with me and that's it you know so I'll, I'll have to replace all those things but those things can be replaced you know people can't so um yeah you know I've, I've been slightly um kind of heartened whatever the word is to see the kind of global response just from everyday people around the world mm. who all seem to have a solidarity much more than ever before like i i feel like it's i think people's in um sort of education around things like this is starting to improve somehow mm. even just on an empathy level maybe but like how like even in margate um we're actually twinned i, I live in margate in kent and we're twinned mm. with a ukrainian town called yelta which is a seaside nice. town really yes. beautiful place like has the most amazing um forests and and um 
also like a kind of castle, I think, that looks out to sea. It's really incredible. But um, we we at Turner Contemporary, I got a call from mm. Clary Wallace and she said, do you know anyone that can project? And I know the people who do Led by Donkeys and projections on walls in London. They're like a political group and they've been projecting onto Houses of Parliament a lot and they've done a lot of Russian-related... Um, they even did one on the Russian, um, you know... Uh, embassy um the day the war started they're doing things like that so we we just projected the ukrainian flag on the turner contemporary for one night last saturday and it it wasn't like we all feel quite helpless but we wanted to kind of show everybody even like local people in margate who are ukrainian that we kind of stand with them how how important do you think solidarity in those kind of ways because you know robert russell i know you both feel and the listeners feel completely helpless yeah. and powerless as well. I know that feeling is, isn't just with me and, and scared, my Ukrainian really friends. Scared. And scared. I know. We all feel like, what can we do? And I feel the same. What do I do? Do I send my silly book out? Do I fundraise? Do I, you know, what the hell can I do? And I know everyone's feeling like that. So it's really important, this solidarity. And they, Ukrainians see it and they feel it. And it's so important. we just got to yeah. bring the governments with us. Yeah, so that they, exactly. they let Ukraine join the EU immediately and they, they take action. And actually that's that's kind of what I thought was that was that by showing even just one tiny town like Margate that we that yeah. we feel this way shows the government that the people of the country care about the other countries. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. and I feel so let down by our government. Oh, I just God. think the refugee I think Boris is a joke. It's just and disgusting. It's just totally it's, disgusting. Yeah. And and I don't think we'll we're going to put up with it, you know. As as the people no. of the country, like no. we we want to help, and I, yeah. like you say, yes, we do feel helpless. But I don't know. Sometimes what do you well, feel now, Mark? Best. Well, I was going to say as well, Russell. One of the reasons why I think uh, I think people have responded so with so much solidarity is the Ukrainians themselves, you know, as people. Mm. And I first saw this myself when I did the project called Displaced Ukrainians about these 2.5 million had already been displaced in 2017. Mm. And I would meet people who had lost everything, absolutely everything. And they had no pension, no roof over their head, nothing. And they were like 60, 70 years old. And none of them, none of them, not one. And I met hundreds. Not one of them ever asked me for anything, not any money, nor to relocate them. And I've been to some real hell holes in my life. I've been to the largest refugee camp in Kenya where people are dying from malaria, 250,000 people in, a, in one refugee camp. Mm. And people always ask for help, which is a natural human emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just say, I, I would say with tears in my eyes, I'm really sorry, I can't help you. All I can do is tell your story or take your picture. And mm. that's my way of helping. Mm. But not one Ukrainian has asked me for help ever. And that is... That is exceptional, my friends. That is resilience. Mm. And the world is seeing that now and responding to it. Because these people, they don't take the freedoms that we take for granted. They don't take them for granted. They want a good judiciary service. They want a great education system. They want fair voting. And they are prepared to fight for it. You know, they're not spoilt like us, where we're like, oh, well, you know, we're going to throw it away on Brexit or we're going to, just let uh, populism take over. No, they're going to fight for those freedoms. I think, and also, a quote I, I, think... The, I just want to just say a quote at this point there that in the book that says, if, if Russia stops fighting, there'll be no war. If Ukraine stops fighting, there'll be no Ukraine. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, Ukraine will always be Ukraine. You can have 10 million Russians occupy the place. That spirit will never, ever die. 
Never. No. They, you know, they've been an independent state for 30 years. They've got their own language, their own cuisine, their own culture. And they've already had two popular uprisings when the Kremlin tried to impose its own dictator mm. in, in power. The last one being my down in 2014. And they just got rid of him. Yeah. Popular, just an uprising. And actually, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me um, that Zelensky, he's able to, he's so charismatic as a speaker, and you can feel that, that passion that he has within his soul. You know, he means what he's saying. And that's the reason I think so many international um, yes. people around the world are, are relating to him. Because, and, and I don't think Russia quite realized no. like, that, that strength that he has what he does in communication. Yeah. He is extraordinary as a communicator. Do you know what it's it makes also me think what of? you say, it's the Ukrainian spirit, isn't it? It's that kind of that strength and that, that, that pride and dignity again. It's, like, it's, it's extraordinary. What he makes me think of is Henry V, yeah. Shakespeare, once more onto the breach, dear friends, once more onto the breach. He feels Shakespearean yes. in his yeah. ability to rally and what he has done mm. in the space of a week and a half, two weeks, mm -hmm. to make the whole world go, wow, is yeah. extraordinary. And is Ukraine just so incredibly proud and so emboldened by this leader? Because mm -hmm. I can't imagine anyone else in the world who's a president, no. prime minister, doing no. anything close to what Zelensky's no. achieved. And we no. cannot sit back and just watch this happen as if it's somebody else's war. It's absolutely outrageous because it could so easily, you know, just cross to other countries. Like he was talking about Sweden or wherever it was, you know. Estonia. And or Finland, Finland or something. Yes. I can't remember what it was yeah. now. But but it was just totally like, what? Like it, it it's our family, essentially. Like we're, we're all the same. And that's what upsets me so much about the borders mm -hmm. as well. It's just this, you, you see the kind of dark, the, the darkness of humanity. You know, the yes. idea of the racism there. As an LGBT yes. person myself, it's like, yes. it's like we've seen that in history. I don't want that yes. to, you know, be repeated, no. even if, I don't know. No. It's just, yeah. I mean, it's totally, you're totally right, Robert. I mean, it's, and I've always, I, you know, I said that in the book as well, that Putin had this plan all along for a Soviet Union Mark II. And uh, it won't stop with Ukraine. You see, that is the point mm -hmm. that people in the West never understood. It won't stop mm -hmm. with Ukraine. It'll be Poland. Exactly. It'll be Lithuania. It'll be Latvia. It'll be Estonia. So he'll just be moving that, that borderline between East and West a bit further along each time. Exactly. So now is the time to make a stand and actually do something about it. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we've been enabling Putin and his entourage for so long in Britain mm. by, you know, allowing them to spend their money and not ask any questions, not even have any taxation of that money, you know. So, of course, they feel totally emboldened to do whatever they want. They think yeah. these people in the West, all they care about is money, you know, and they're right. I think, what, right, you know. I think what you've done with this book is that it, this is not a neutral work. You have absolutely picked a side. And I think that in this position we're all in is that you cannot be neutral in this situation. You have to I pick agree. a side and you have to be vocal. And what your book, uh, Stop Tanks With Books, is doing is is picking a side very clearly and sending the message out there and empathising and showing the humanity of these people that we need to know exist and this is going on and what rob said is that that's the the fear is that this could be any of us at any moment that are leaving our homes because of this and carrying our dogs you know i've got three dogs and i have this empathy for mm. people with their animals in yes. the shelters i'm yeah, like kids terrible. kids family but they're with their cats and dogs and you're like yes. oh i yes. can't the the that that just yes. just makes me so devastated yes 
Yes, I, I know. I mean, uh, I can't pretend what it's like for Ukrainians, but um, for me, I just feel completely devastated. I, I love, I, it was my home, guys. It's my home, you know, I loved it. I loved it. I can't imagine living anywhere else now. And, um, you know, I'm going to go back in a few days. I'm going to deliver some medicine to friends and family friends and just try and, I guess, try and get persuade some people to, to leave if they can. Because um, Will you work think, at all, Mark? Will you, will you do anything with the camera or do you think that's going to be put down for a while? You know, I just don't know, Russell. I've taken a few pictures, but I feel in a way that my statement is in the book, Stop Tank Through mm. Books, and I want to remember Ukraine as it, as it should be, mm. which is depicted in the book. And, you know, there are so many brilliant Ukrainian photojournalists doing amazing work now, and they, they own this, you know. It's respectful of me if I just let them do it rather than document it myself. It's, it's, it's a bit dishonourable of me, I think, if I start taking pictures of it. It's, it's really, although I consider Ukraine my home and I, I want to be Ukrainian in a sense and my partner's Ukrainian, um, you know, it's, it's their story to tell, not mine at the end of the day. Mm. And so that's why I'm trying as much as I can to get them commissions from New York Times. I spoke to New York Times photo editors today and I said, listen, here's a list of brilliant Ukrainian photographers you should be working with. I did that with New Yorker magazine. I did that with Vanity Fair. I did it with all the big magazines. And it's just trying to get those people some some work. It's not charity. They're amazing photographers, you know, yeah. and they should be they should be employed, you know, and the West knows nothing about them. You know, we know so little about the culture that exists in Ukraine. And it's it's partly due to this wave, this tidal wave of disinformation from the Kremlin that we've so readily eaten up for the past eight years because it's not been in our interest to question Russia uh, for financial reasons. Mm. You know, it's so sad. And actually, so that's sad. something that I find in your photographs is so well documented, is just the culture, the kind of rich tapestry of culture. And it is such a beautiful, beautiful culture. And like, you know, there was that artist, um, there was a house, I think, an artist house that's been destroyed um, I saw it reported the other day and it's mm. the most beautiful pa wall paintings and kind of, mm. you know, it's just tragic because the actual culture is so rich. Well, they are Again, art culture, like museums yeah, yeah, and I mean. exhibitions. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we are, our, yeah. we've had friends that have been out there recently. There's an mm. artist behind me, Hannah Quinn and Rosie Hastings and Lindsay mm. Mendick. They've been out there showing work in Kiev. It's it's yeah. an international, an internationally important, you know, location for culture. Well, the music scene is tremendous as well. The rave culture here is, it was yeah. absolutely tremendous. The, um, yeah. you know, the food, the borscht is unbelievable. Malevich, the painter, is from Ukraine. You know, oh, really? it's, just, it's yeah. just, yeah, incredible uh, and actually, my, cultural my, my, history. My friends Placebo, the rock band, they, they've extensively toured the Ukraine and Russia because, yeah. like us, I think they, they very much take the same perspective that they're kind of anti-Kremlin but pro-Russia. And they, mm. you know, I know they're absolutely devastated because they've just had to cancel their, their tour there um, and to the Ukraine. But it's like I mean, that there yeah. are so many amazing musicians amazing talent you know amazing artists talents all these it's just tragic. i mean i tr i've been trying to get the book to russia as well because i think it's really important that you know they can so read their kind of an objective truth about ukraine rather than what they're told so it hasn't gone there then. oh it has yeah i right. sent i've sent one immediately to putin right and yeah and uh, i sent it to a few libraries it'll probably get destroyed but it might get through and then I know a group of activists quite well, both in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. 
And uh, I was about to send a pack of about 30 books to them to distribute about a week ago. And um, they said, listen, you know, we've all just received this text message, not just the activists, but pe people in general saying that if you're if you if it's seen that you're pro-Ukrainian or you receive pro-Ukrainian material in any shape or form, mm. you will go to prison for 20 years. So I was like, when I was shown that text message, I was like, I'm not sending you books, guys. I'm sorry. We're going to yeah. find a different way to get the books into Russia. So what about your so that, safety at this point then, Mark? You, you're going back to Ukraine. If that's the case for someone who has your material in their hand, what 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 is your safety? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I just I don't really think about it, to be honest. Um uh, you know, there's so many brave people doing the most incredibly brave things in Ukraine at the moment. What I'm doing is nothing compared to them, basically. Mm. Mm. Nothing. I mean, people who have never shot shot a gun before picking up a gun, people mm. sheltering for, for hours underground, people giving up everything to defend their, their country, you know, simple, humble, humble, beautiful people. And uh, so what I'm doing just feels like so inconsequential. And I'm sure you guys feel the same. You feel like, I wish I could do more, but yeah. you just don't know how to do it. I know, but there was, that, there was that picture actually taken by a photojournalist of a young couple who just got married the day before the, the war started. And then, you know, when um, the government in Ukraine gave guns to everybody and yes. said, if you want to fight for us, you can. There's a picture of the young couple, male, female, you know, bridegroom holding the guns. And it just broke my heart because it's just like, you know, that, They've just got married the day before and they're like kids. They're like 19 or something. And there they are fighting for their country. But equally, I totally respect them and support them. Like, you know, it's like, I mean, yeah. I know it's, 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 it's just so horrific. And the other part is what, you know, like you keep on saying, there's no right or wrong, you know. It's like, but what do you do? You face these decisions. Of, you know, I gave blood the other day. Mm. For the Ukrainian army, I, I thought about picking up a gun as well. And I thought, no, I, I'm just I'm just not. I'm a 55 year old man. I can't start shooting people. I can't do it. You know, and like you guys, I'm not I'm not anti-Russian. I'm anti-Kremlin, you know. Um, and where's my position? You know, I love Ukraine. I have a residency there. I have a residency permit. I'm I'm partnered with a Ukrainian woman, my friends are Ukrainian, I feel Ukrainian, I feel like I've lost my home now, but do I, should I pick up a gun and defend it? Maybe I should have done. I, I just don't know. And then I was thinking, no, your priority is getting your partner out of the country safely. You know, you've got to get Lukira out, which is what I've done now. So, you know, these impossible moral decisions, ethical decisions that people have but to also, make every day. But also you are, you are, you are contributing though, because the fact that you're even like contacting all these news agencies and mm. keeping the story alive and mm. keep it, I don't know. And even your photographs, there's a message in those photographs. Like I do, I do think it's really, really valuable. And sometimes we all have different skills and it doesn't mean that everyone's going to be the best fighter. Other people are great mm. at talking, you know, sure. a bit like the leader of the country right now. He's an amazing sure. communicator. And that's one yeah. of the biggest skills that's actually saving the country is the yeah. communication. And I think yeah. there's so much to be said for that, but mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, no, I think it's, it's yeah, I think, you know, you, you said that your work has been life-changing for you, but what you're doing is hopefully changing the lives of your subjects. Yeah, thank you people. so much, because yeah. I, I think your photos are extraordinary, and I think they they really do so much justice to the kind of memory of what was Ukraine, but also what the Ukraine could be once again. 
Can I put an appeal out to your listeners? Yeah. yeah. Could I say if any of you know someone who can possibly help Ukraine in real practical terms, it might be a politician, it might be a celebrity who can be very vocal, please get in touch and I can send you a copy of the book so you can pass it on or you can give me their address and we'll get a copy to them. Anything to try and get more support for Ukraine through these books, which is their purpose. You know, it's my way of fighting Russian aggression, basically. How can they get so, to you through your Instagram? Instagram or info at marknevel.com. Okay. Um, Any way you like, basically. And I will get make sure you get a copy of the book to, to pass on. I think all, I think everybody here, all, all our main newspapers, I know the Guardians run it, but I think more people should be connecting to that and, and amplifying that, definitely. Definitely. So well, anyway, so we ask every guest that comes on, this feels really frivolous to be asking you these questions now, but you're, you are a talk card guest, so we are going to ask them and you can refuse to say to answer them. But I know we, we, we ask the same questions to everyone. The first one is if you could do an art heist, and this is exciting to me because I know that you're influenced by, you know, Martin Parr, but Gary Winogrand and I'm sure Arbus is in there. You, you, you're, you are a photographer who's a photography fan and I love that. So I'm interested in this answer, but if you could do an art heist, you could have any work of art in the world for your self to live with what would that be and why oh gosh i wasn't prepared for that oh oh. it sounds it's frivolous i feel like a a knob asking it but i just feel like not at all no i just i don't know if i can answer that properly oh god wow so difficult i'd probably ask for a piece of ukrainian art now to be rescued and delivered to my home that's what i'd ask for yeah, some some Ukrainian painting from the 1920s would be absolutely beautiful. Well, you know what? I just what looked I up. I just looked up the artist um, whose house was destroyed that had all the wall paintings, and her name was Polina Reiko, and it was That's an right, art-filled yeah. home, and it was like a na- national cultural monument, and it's actually been totally destroyed. I think. Well, Did, I'd, I'd have in a letter. That would be great. One of Reiko's paintings for my yeah. wall would be fantastic. Please, please let's let's save one of those. Mm. The other question we ask is, "What is your favourite colour?" But I just feel like can we? Really... <laughs> <laughs> no, we feel so bad. So bad. Glad you're laughing. What is your? Maybe favorite? we'll just. It's good to keep some sense of joy. Isn't yeah, it, and and this is talk uh, art. Yeah. Okay. I like pale blue. Okay. Light blue, sky blue. I like sky blue. Yes. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. With a bit of yellow next to it. A bit like the Ukrainian flag, in fact. Exactly. Yeah, I mean that, and that actually, I've seen the Ukrainian flag. Someone posted flag. a Rothko that he did a version of it, and Carmen Herrera has done has used the, these colours in their work. So that them that colour that that blue next to that yellow has featured through contemporary art for decades, and now people are bringing these images up. It's really it's quite amazing because these are works that would have been peripheral to me, and now they're being brought into my orbit but you know it is amazing isn't it the amount of support that i've had even personally so many messages from people all over the world people i haven't seen for 30 years getting in touch and saying stay safe is leukeria okay and they don't even know leukeria my partner and it's people are really concerned you know and that's so touching there's a sense of solidarity yeah so maybe maybe all is not lost you know mm. what's the best advice you've ever received mark when it comes to your work uh well my own advice to other people would be don't pay too much attention to what other people are doing um 
because you know you'll go you'll go crazy so if I, ever i worry too much about what the art world is thinking and doing my projects just crumble you know as long as i forget about the art world and just think about the target audience which is always non-art you know then the projects normally succeed on some level and then you know the art world might like it and take it up and show it or they might not but it doesn't matter because the biggest kick for me is seeing the work have impact in the real world uh, with real communities and real people. And there's no, no better feeling than that. I mean, that is the tops. So I'm very lucky to get that feeling once in a while. I'm actually reaching people through what it is that I do. Um, and yeah. I do really think that art creates hope. You know, it kind of helps people maintain, hold on to hope and to some sense of self. And I, I think that's what your work definitely does. And um, Mark, thank you so much thank for spending you, this um, hour and a half with us. Um, and I'm just sending you so much love and just know that we are, you know, the people of the UK are with Ukraine and regardless of our political system, you know, we're with they, you. They and, know it and they feel it and I'm going to tell yeah. them personally when I go back, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say Robert and Russell mm. represent British people and we're on your team, we're totally mm. on your team. Big and I don't know, I just really guys. hope even this episode, maybe it'll reach people who can help, I don't know. But if anyone can help support the Ukraine, you know, please do in any yeah. way you can. I mean, I'm and sure we must have Russian listeners, you know, who are... Uh, we do, we do, we yeah, do. We do have, quite, we do. We do have a yeah. percentage, you know, they're going to... 172 countries. If this can sneak in under the radar yeah. now and be listened yes. to and make a difference, that would be incredible. So fingers crossed that, you know, art yeah. can change lives and hopefully art can, we can all do our as as limited as we feel we can hopefully there might be one impact with someone there and that'd be incredible that's right that's right well sending so much love to you mark and please um, stay safe and thank you for your contribution to photography as well because honestly you're a brilliant brilliant artist yeah and your work stops me in my tracks like yeah and that's the strength of that book too and you just have hopefully yeah. more media outlets will publish your so people can buy well. stop tanks with books very soon if you want to see images and get in touch with mark please go to markneville.com and you're on instagram at mark neville is that your handle mark neville studio i think it is for some reason yeah okay and yeah. i think yeah everyone should uh get these images we'll, um, share we'll them to you on take take yeah. are, are people allowed to share them on their feeds and get them images out oh, there oh yeah sure of course great yeah, absolutely. so everybody listening absolutely. please if you're listening and you've enjoyed, ukrainian ones exactly exactly that's what i'm saying so everyone <laughs> if you can get images of, of ukraine from mark's instagram if everyone listening has enjoyed this episode please take an image uh tag mark tag you know hashtag everything you can about ukraine tag talk art and let's get these images out there and hopefully you know it's going to get to the right people and they're going to see this and and connect so that is a rallying call for everybody that's listened to this episode please go and do that what a pleasure thank, thank, you. thank you so much thank you thanks for listening everyone we'll be back very soon Bye-bye. bye mark thank bye, mark. you Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.